This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative coronavirus conversations we've had throughout the week on our daily radio show. And Jason, we finished the prior week talking a lot about mixed messages, and that seemed to permeate again this week in what was week eight for many of us still working at home, even as around the U.S. some states were easing restrictions and there was more talk of reopening the economy. And throughout the week, Jason, I felt like it was two steps forward, one step back when it came to developing a vaccine and how best to safely reopen and also protect what was left of our economy. And this, as economic data continued to shatter previous readings and as more companies, as we know, dropped their guidance for the year, the visibility, it's just not there. Well, It was a series of conversations, I feel like, as I think back across the week, where we were sort of of two minds. This notion of, like, what are you doing to protect? What are you doing to shelter? Remaining, that conversation remaining, but also looking ahead, looking short-term, looking mid-term, and looking long-term. And that has to do with the medical side, but it certainly has to do with companies, companies who know that they, as institutions, and maybe more importantly, the people who work for them and the leaders that we're talking to are going to be forever changed. And the implications of that are not easy to get your head around, but we did our best over the course of the week. Absolutely. And we know some companies and industries have been hurt disproportionately. Some have actually seen a surge in demand, and that included Blue Apron President and CEO Linda Kozlowski. I mean, they talked about how demand, they couldn't even meet it all initially. And they had to think about protecting workers, which they already do because they're in the food industry, but also how to get their kits out to consumers. First up, though, we go inside the magazine. We get a firsthand look at testing for the virus. This has been a massive question. It's on all of our minds. You can write about it in the abstract, but Bloomberg News writer Stephanie Baker, she had four antibody tests herself, and unfortunately, she's still not sure if she had COVID-19. You know, I did this because um, I realized that I, like many other people, uh, had wonder- was wondering whether or not I might have had it. Um, and I think I realized that a lot of other people were in a similar situation. And I had uh, written about antibody testing as, you know, being trumpeted by politicians as a way out of lockdown, but had talked to scientists who had criticized these antibody tests as being unreliable. So I thought, well, if I throw myself into this world... Um, and really do some research and test it on myself, I'll get to the bottom of, uh, of you know, how reliable, reliable these tests are. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, maybe it will be really boring and I'll just get, you know, a bunch of negative results. <laughs> Not and then boring! And I won't really have a story. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, uh, and then, so when, it, when I started out, I got a negative test and I thought, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to get a bunch of negatives and I won't have a story or much to say. Um, and then the next test was positive and I was really confounded. The third test was also positive. So I figured, well, two out of three, I, you know, the first test must be an outlier. By the time I took the fourth test, which was negative, I thought, well, two positives, two negatives. I have no clue whether or not uh, I've had it. Uh, and then I started. And you have a story. <laughs> you definitely have a story <laughs> and then there. I have a story. And I started to take a closer look at these tests. Why would I be getting, you know, 
differing results. You know, there's obviously a lot of these companies are claiming, you know, incredibly high, almost perfect uh, specificity, very high sensitivity rates. But what I realize is that some of them are testing different antibodies to different parts of the virus. Some test just for antibodies against the so-called spike protein, which is a sort of calling card of this novel coronavirus. Others test for antibodies against something called a nucleocapsid protein, which are far more abundant and easier to detect. Some test for both. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got so many varying results. Oh, my God. So many questions. Because what's key about this, right, Stephanie, is that so many world leaders, and you write this in your story, have said that we need these antibody tests to determine who's had the virus, who has immunity, so we can reopen up the economies and so everybody can feel safe. But what I got from your story is that there are tons of different types of tests out there, and there are some differences between what's done in a lab versus what you can do, kind of a rapid test. And the problem is there's a lot of variation, right? So I feel like there's not a lot of certainty that comes out of these antibody tests. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, you know, one of the things I should say at the, at the start here is that scientists don't know if you have antibodies, how much protection they actually provide. Right. You know, many people, many scientists think that it will give you at least a few months of protection, perhaps several years, but the virus has only been around, um, you know, that we're aware of since January. Still, still so much to learn, um, and it's hard to, see, to, to study how long immunity lasts and, and, and what level of antibodies really provides you any protection. But my takeaway from this very unscientific little experiment I did was that these tests, by and large, are not ready for prime time. And um, I, I'm surprised at the overwhelming number of messages I got from friends and contacts and Bloomberg users saying, um, I got a test, I, is it correct? Or yeah. I'm going to get a test, and what do you think? Um, and, you know, other people who, like, who said, well, I took two tests and I had a similar experience to you. I got conflicting results. So um, I'm surprised at how much this story has kind of captured what is on so many people's minds right now. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more research uh, into antibodies and how to detect them before we can think about rolling this out on a wider scale. And that's Bloomberg News' Stephanie Baker, normally on the financial investigations beat. She's done some amazing work around Paul Manafort, the Ukraine, and Russia angle to everything going on here in the United States. But this was a very personal story, Carol. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, Jason? I mean, she really hit something with all of us. We've all had those conversations with friends, neighbors, ourselves about, I think we had the virus. And, you know, what we're finding out is that there are so many questions about the accuracy of these rapid anti body tests on the market. But, you know, we need these to reopen the economy. And yet what she found out, there's a lot of false results. And it really raises a lot of questions about how do we reopen safely? Well, it is the big question. And it's one of the questions that we posed to the president and CEO of Providence Health. He had a stark reality check for sure. That's coming up here on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. 
all about the coronavirus, all about the state of the world, the state of our lives, Carol. And Mm -hmm. this is a medical crisis at its core. Yeah, and I've got to say, one of our go-to voices certainly has been this next guest. They were home to the first known case of the virus in the United States, Dr. Rod Hockman. He's the president and CEO of Providence Health. And, you know, they really have been dealing with this from day one. And it was great to get his thoughts about, again, the path forward. And again, we're finding it's difficult. I think it starts out with, you know, we're going to get better at treating this virus. So you saw with remdesivir now being approved, and, you know, we, our first patient that we had in the United States, we actually treated with remdesivir three months ago. And what we're going to see are some other medications that are going to be added to that in kind of a cocktail mm-hmm. to see if we can really improve patients that get sick and hopefully prevent death. So that's one thing that I think the public can start to say, wow, that's a good tranche of research and work that's going on. On the other side of it is the race for the vaccine, where, you know, there's probably more than 15 trials that are ongoing, which is fantastic. And we have a lot of cooperation going on between the scientists with the different trials out there. And to kind of explain it to listeners, it's, it's picking different parts of the virus and seeing which one of those parts is going to give you immunity. And so that, in simple terms, you know, why would there be 15 different trials? Because they're also all looking at different aspects of the virus to see which ones seem to be, as I would say, the most immunogenic and the ones that can confer immunity. So, and then there's a, an issue of whether you use DNA or RNA, which from your, you know, biology from high school uh, has all different consequences. There are some companies that are looking for a faster turnaround on their vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still we're cautiously hopeful about that, but, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. You know, so the, the most optimistic estimates are sometime in the late fall, towards the end of the year, and the most realistic are probably in the first quarter of next year mm-hmm. uh, for a vaccine. Uh, that, that's what... That's what most of us are looking at in in the the clinical and scientific community. And so, Dr. Hockman, as you look across the country and and you draw on the experience that you've had there in Washington state, you see this sort of checkerboard that we keep describing of, you know, different states sort of coming back at different times. But part of that is a response to how the virus has played out in different geographies, different urban areas versus suburban versus rural what makes the most sense in terms of the medical side and in terms of what we should be doing before we have a vaccine? What what makes the most sense? Sure. Yeah, I, I just talked uh, to the business roundtable on Friday. We were trying to make some sense for the CEOs around the country about what they should do. And it's all very, very dependent upon your geography and your density. So when I think about, you know, giving advice to different organization companies, the first question I ask are, where are you in the country? Because it'll make a difference depending on where those states and localities are on the curve of number of cases. And then the second thing that's really important is the density of the work environment. So are you able to spread people out? Can you spread customers out? Can you do some of that, which will help really, really decrease risk and exposure? So it's almost, you almost have to go through a checklist of the things that you do in your business or where you are to kind of understand what the best practices are. And some of us are, we're actually putting together kind of some of those guidelines 
so that these are the things that you look for, and these are the things that will decrease your risk significantly. And then a little bit of this is going to be, we've got to see what happens in the country. We're going to learn a lot. Certain places will teach us a lot. In our, in our environment, Alaska is wide open and open for business. Um, you know, again, not a lot of density, but we're also going to learn a lot by doing that. What are the things that we have to look out for? What about something like mass transportation in a city like New York? How do you see that moving forward? Wow, that is a tough one. That is a really, really hard one to think about uh, because those are the situations where, you know, if you ask me as a physician, that worry us the most. When you've you know, got a crowded subway car that has a few hundred people in it in close proximity, uh, how do you do that? And I don't know whether it's going to take limiting some of that transportation. Obviously, everyone wearing a mask, because there's no question that if everyone wore a mask, it will decrease significantly the transmission rate of this virus, even if they're not in 95 masks that people have on. So some of that, and then, you know, you know not touching anything. Uh, if I got on a subway, as soon as I got off, I'd be, you know, washing my hands, doing all those kinds of things. So I think we're going to have to make some accommodation and probably limiting, you know, we can't have a packed subway car. So right. are there ways that we can kind of limit the number of people? But those are going to be some of the tough ones that we're going to have to solve. That's Dr. Rod Hockman. He's the president and CEO of Providence Health, as we've been reminding everybody, home to the first known case of the virus in the U.S. You know, getting a vaccine, that's what the conversations are all about. But as he reminds us, this virus, we are still learning so much about it. And so that complicates getting a vaccine. Well, the other thing that I really took away from his conversation, I felt like it informed many conversations we had subsequently, oh, I know where you're going. was this notion <laughs> that how you come back depends on density and geography. Density and geography, I feel like I want to like write it down on everything that I talk about when it relates to the comeback. Remember we asked him about how do you open up mass transportation in New York City? And he goes, well, that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, I felt like he, that out. I felt like he actually said, oof. When we even, <laughs> he did say oof. Uh, brought that up. And uh, for those of us who live in the tri-state area and commute to New York City, that's a tough answer. Yeah, exactly. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, a conversation with Blue Apron President and CEO Linda Kozlowski on keeping workers safe and keeping up with the surge in demand. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. And of course, Jason, all of it had to do about the coronavirus. And it also tapped into those companies who have had to ramp up their businesses to meet increased demand for all of us sheltering at home. Well, we know life has changed. Our daily routines have changed. How we eat certainly mm -hmm. has changed and what we eat. We spoke with Linda Kozlowski. She's got a fascinating background. She was a high-level executive at Etsy. She worked at Evernote. She's the relatively new president and CEO over at Blue Apron. That's been a challenging company, but this virus has put things in a slightly different perspective. Well, I think there are sort of two main ways that we had to think about operating slightly differently. One is when it comes to how we actually um, handled the demand. Obviously, there was a very sharp increase in demand when, um, when coronavirus orders started to go into play as far as people going to shelter in place, et cetera, and restaurant closures. And so we had to make a few decisions on how to streamline operations in order to try to make sure that we could get as many boxes out to people as possible. 
And we did that through consolidating some of um, the recipes and, um, and looking at ways that we could just simplify the pack lines and, and, um, and, and reduce complexity. Then the other aspect of it was really about the safety piece. Um, we're already very, very obsessed with safety and sanitation. We're an FDA-regulated center. We have an SQF certification, which is considered to be one of the highest standards in the world. And so we already take a lot of precautions on a day-to-day basis. But we layered on top of that in um, even in early March before we were starting to see any kind of change in demand to say let's let's get some other things in place around additional hand washing, additional safety precautions, social distancing, and eventually you know face masks in all of our facility. So we we wanted to make sure that that our employees were safe, but also that they had the tools and the understanding of how to continue to be safe. Um, throughout this time. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think we all went through a period of, of like, wait, wait, can I get outside food? Is that safe for me? And I think we came to the conclusion for the most part that it was okay. And I think in many ways, though, it was about keeping workers safe so that they didn't get the virus from kind of working next to each other. What was physically the setup? Did you have to spread everybody out in a warehouse? So it's it's thinking about the production floor itself and how do you add social distancing um, in the production floor. Mm. But it's actually way beyond that because you have break rooms, you have the parking lot, you have, um, you know, people taking breaks from, from their shifts. And you want to make sure that they understand the impact of social distancing across the board. And so we, we now require masks at all times in our facilities, not just on the production floor to make sure that people have that additional layer of protection. So we spread apart the microwaves where people might heat their lunches up and, and that sort of thing to make sure that people did not need to, to, to you know, come in contact with each other, even off the production floor as well. And in terms of the supply chain, you know, we heard as recently as this afternoon from the president meeting there with the governor of Iowa about you know, what's going on with meat. What are you seeing? Well, we actually have very, very high animal welfare standards and, uh, for our proteins and very high quality standards for our produce. So we have a very tight supply chain in order to manage that, and we do not want to compromise on those standards because one of the things we're known for is the quality of our ingredients. And our supply chain, um, when it comes to those types of proteins, has not actually been impacted um, from, from those concerns that have been coming out in the media. We don't, we don't source from those particular suppliers. And we have pretty tight control over our chain to make sure that we're, we're not only adhering to our own safety standards, but that our suppliers are adhering to those safety standards as well. So we've had fairly minimal impact on our supply chain. At the same time, we also have such a variety of recipes and flavors on a weekly basis right. that we're constantly sourcing from different people anyway, so we can move between suppliers as well wow. as needed to ensure that the supply is safe. You know, you mentioned that you had seen a sharp increase in demand, sort of that growth in demand. Uh, help us uh, understand, can you quantify that? And, and is that sort of, are you seeing that sort of hold as we get deeper uh, into this stay-at-home world? Yeah, I think that what we said that we saw was when you compare the first three weeks of March to the first three weeks of April, we saw about a 27% lift in demand um, in those sort of early weeks. And, of course, that demand, we, we think there's more out there, and we continue to, um, to try to make sure that we're serving people as best as possible. Uh, we had to um, – we couldn't meet all of that demand at the beginning of the cycle, but we felt that it was important to compare the beginning of March to, be, to the beginning of April as opposed to looking year over year because right. so much other dynamics change throughout the year that are unrelated to, to COVID. And um, 
And that's really where we saw the sharp increase, and it came from a combination of our existing customers ordering a lot more, as well as customers coming back into the service that had previously canceled and brand new customers coming into the service at the same time. And that's Blue Apron CEO Linda Kozlowski. Really enjoyed that conversation in part because they know a lot about their consumer. This is a business that was already trying to write itself in some ways, and they're facing something, as all of us are, that no one anticipated. And she talked about how you do it. How do you come back? And they already are doing social distancing on the production line, on the production floor. But they also talked about even in their break rooms, right? They've got to make Make sure all their workers are kept apart to make sure that they are staying safe. So it gives us an idea of what our life is like when we get back. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from one of the founders of Mollison Company, Todd Wadler. But we're not talking banking. We're talking boxing. We are indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations Carol and I had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the coronavirus, where we are, and where we go from here. And this was one guest that you know really well, and that's Todd Wadler. Yes, he helped co-found Molis & Company, the investment bank, but what's interesting is what he's doing right now. He's the co-founder and CEO of Box Union Studio. And that fitness world, Jason, we've talked to a lot of folks who play into that industry. They had to pivot pretty quickly, uh, and increasingly it meant going digital. First of all, let's take a step back. Remind us what Box Union is. Box Union is a fitness boxing brand that my co-founder, Felicia Alexander, and I started back in 2017. We have two fitness boxing studios in Los Angeles, and crazy enough, we were about to open our third in a couple of weeks when COVID-19 came about. And our view going back was that, um, and was supported by the data, was that the category was really poised for growth if the right offering came by. We felt that what held the category back was a lack of accessibility. I don't know how many boxing gyms you've been in, but for the most part, they could be pretty intimidating. Yeah. So, so we really worked to reinvent uh, the category and reinvent what the offering was from everything we did. And that was whether it was the environmental, which obviously, Jason, you've seen in person, but the, probably the biggest place we spent our time was on the product itself and the workout. So what we created was what we call Box to the Beat, which means everything we do, we do to the rhythm of the music in the room. It gives us nonstop movement, and it, it really makes the workout more fun and more engaging. And as we've taken the business into the digital world, I, and we'll talk about that, I think that's really, really important. So one of the last thing... Wait, yeah, wait. Well, and I'm curious, in your move to reinvent and make it less intimidating, has it worked? Like, what's the demos on it versus maybe what a traditional boxing gym might have? Yeah, great question, Carol. So if, when we looked at it and why we got so excited through the data was that boxing for fitness showed way more men versus female, and it also showed um, an older demo mm. amongst the males. And, it, and you, the two of you who are obviously very involved in the boutique fitness world know that's not what the boutique world right. looks like. Right. So we actually ended up with exactly the opposite of what we saw, wow. and that was what really excited us. And, and part of that was not only the workout, but we really lean heavily into the mind and the mindset. And we think that that plays a critical role in the fitness journey. And boxing sets up really well for that. 
and we just have the reviews and the, the, the emails from the customers to show that, especially in a time like COVID-19 with anxiety at all times. High. So what does that mean, lean into the mindset? And, you, you know, you're tapping into, you're right, Jason and I are very much into this world. We're very much into mental health as well as physical health. So when you lean into the mindset, what do you, what do you mean specifically? Yeah, so in our, in our classes, we're looking to inspire and motivate you and part of the way that we're doing that is through our words, mm. getting you to be able to achieve more than you could otherwise do and think about, not in an intimidating way, but in a way of really unlocking that inner fighter. We say it in our classes as find your inner fighter. And it really has helped people deal with some of the things that you deal with in the mind, most notably things like anxiety. And that is combined with honestly, just punching a bag, which is obviously very safe, but it, there's a release that comes with that. And so we've yeah. been able to really, really tap into that as part, as part of our brand. Let's continue our conversation with Todd Wadler, co-founder, CEO of Box Union Studio, joining us on the phone from Lake Tahoe. All right, Todd, so we set the table with what the workout is, what it feels like in the studio. There is no studio at the moment for any of us, uh, including Carol and me, who are talking to you from our respective mm -hmm. homes. We don't even have our own studio to broadcast this radio show. So what does a virtual version of this look like? Great question. So when we – the good news is that, when, that we had always planned to have a digital offering. Mm -hmm. So that is something the team and I were working on all along clearly COVID-19 sped that up for us. And what, we, what you have to make sure when you launch an offering like that is, is that the physical world and the virtual world still need to come together. You can't have two different brands. So we tapped into what we felt were our core competencies as a brand, which is what we discussed. We need to be accessible. We need to be fun. We need to have boxing. And then as we kind of looked at, through that lens, we said, what else do people like? Well, they like the live nature of what we're doing. So our platform offers live classes. But how do we extend the brand a little bit to make the offering even broader for more people? And what we did is we came out with what we call as train like a boxer, which means the platform has all the boxing content you're ever going to want from a beginner through an advanced boxer. But as we know, boxers train and any athlete trains in more than just what the sport they're doing. So we have cardio workouts, lots of different hit-based workouts by body part. We have jump rope. We have strength-based workouts with weights and no weights. We have mobility and recovery. You know, look, as we get older, right, it's more it's part of, the, part of the, the battle is just recovering. Right. And then we've also offered, are about to launch our mindset offering which we're really excited. We're bringing a best-selling author who's going to be what I call topical and purposeful meditations. And they're, and they're kind of based on what's going on. So I'll give you a quick example, which is dealing with anxiety dur during COVID-19. That would be an example of the types of meditations. So we have extended the brand, but kept it rhythm-based and giving the consumer many different ways to work out on our platform and build their community there. Todd, I am curious, too, about the growth that you've seen in digital. It has been amazing. Um, you know, the first, as we launched it, the first step of what we did is we went to our members, and the adoption rate was, was really fantastic. 
But what I've been, quite frankly, blown away by is how we are on five continents already, and it's not just one person on each continent. It has been unbelievable how fast um, the word has gotten out. And the only way you can do that is word of mouth. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Todd, is like everybody, you know, I mean, not not to be overly glib, but like everybody's going virtual, you you know, you had Equinox launch their thing, you know, you've got some big players who are going after this. How do you stand out in this type of world? Yep. That's a great question. And look, I think any successful online platform will have to have certain key elements. I think the number one thing is you've got to have engaging content. We've spent a lot of time with built-in chat features and elements like that to be able to supply that. You've got to have your mix of live and on-demand. But the most successful ones, and the ones, some of the ones that you're talking about and some of the ones that we'll be launching, you have to develop a strong community. And in order to do that, in my opinion, you really have to have a direct relationship with the customer with a clear point of view. They have to know why you are there and why you exist and why they want to do what you're doing. Hmm. And I think the way we've communicated the brand, it's really compelling. The second element I would say is I don't think there's anybody in the fitness boxing world that has compelling, accessible content in boxing. So I think it's a newer category, just like it was in the studio physical location side in the virtual world as well. And that's what we're seeing, and that's why I think our numbers have been have even amazed us when we've launched this. That's Todd Wadler, the co-founder and CEO of Box Union Studio. And I thought it was interesting, first of all, just getting, you know, his thoughts on how they reinvented the boxing workout, right? Making it less intimidating, but also, you know, making sure folks could tap into the workout at home while they're sheltering in place and also helping others deal with anxiety, right? His program about mindset offerings. I love that he was thinking about physical health as well as mental health. Absolutely. And this is a workout. I've done it out in LA. It is pretty intense. It's very hard, but very worthwhile. And as you say, they've thought a lot about how they position it. And this moment in fitness is going to tell us so much about going forward. This is a week where we heard blockbuster earnings from Peloton. So if you can figure out sort of how to get to people, not just in the gym or in the studio, but also at their homes, there's a huge opportunity there because we're all going to be thinking about our bodies and our minds and staying healthy. And we know being healthier has certainly been something that helps you fight this virus even more so. So maybe it's something we think about uh, even more so for the future. All right. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We're going to hear from the well-known lawyer and arbitrator and the go-to guy when it comes to crisis management. We're talking about Ken Feinberg on a possible COVID-19 compensation fund. We're also going to head down to Atlanta, check in with Frank Patterson. He is the Pinewood Atlanta Studios CEO. They are carefully reopening for business, hearing a lot about What's next in entertainment? And speaking of what's next, we talked to Paul Rabel, the co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, on what's next for his league and and really gave us a very detailed insight into what it takes to bring sports back. It's not going to be easy, but he's doing it. Plus, how Instacart wasn't quite ready to be an essential service overnight. It's this week's cover story in the magazine. I love this story. What was happening inside the company as demand just took off. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. 
Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations Carol and I had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. All about the coronavirus, it makes its way into every single conversation that we have, but yeah. it's getting more complicated, more nuanced in some ways, especially as we figure out what's going to happen next. Right. So many moving parts and so many things to consider to make sure everybody is kept safe. We're going to hear from one voice, Ken Feinberg, certainly well known to the Bloomberg radio audience. He's the go-to crisis management individual. He's been talking with members of Congress about a possible compensation fund for those impacted by the virus. But again, it's not an easy call. So we're going to hear from him directly. Also, we're going to hear from Frank Patterson. He runs Pinewood Atlanta Studios. If you've seen a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. you've seen their work. We're talking about the studio where Avengers and many more movies were shot. And Paul Rabel, the GOAT. That's right. We talked to Paul Rabel, the co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. He's bringing back a two-week self-quarantined tournament, Jason, but it's not easy in terms of making sure that everybody stays safe. Could set the model for other sports. It remains to be seen. First up, though, let's get inside the magazine and the cover story. It's about how Instacart wasn't ready to become an essential service overnight. We heard from Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and one of the co-writers of the story, Ellen Hewitt. You know, props to Ellen uh, for making it especially great, um, as well as her, her co-byline on the, on the story, uh, Lizette Chapman. I, you know, we put this this story in motion I think it was pretty close to like six weeks ago now, um, almost right at the very beginning of, of all, everyone being stuck at home and suddenly being like, how are we going to get groceries? And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people, especially in cities, have been turning to is is obviously Instacart. And this is sort of in that genre of like companies, um, you know, finding ways to meet the moment. And, you know, in in some ways, like, you know, Instacart had laid a lot of this groundwork uh, in advance, but what they've that actually been able to do or are in the process of doing is hiring a ton of, of people to do more deliveries. Um, but the catch there is that they're gig workers, not full-time employees, which I think is going to be ju- just become, uh, again, part of the kind of societal issues going forward. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the company has just seen a surge in interest, um, and Ellen, when you when you talk to them, um, you know the CEO. The lead anecdote is just amazing. Um, how they kind of like fell into this moment. Can you you want to share that amazing bit of reporting? Yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, of course. So uh, the you know we opened the story with this anecdote that um, when Lizette and I heard it, we were like, this has to be the lead. Um, what happened was it was um, Instacart's first. Uh, all hands that was remote, so done over Zoom. This is, you know, had been a week or so since they required all their employees who usually work in like Toronto and San Francisco to work from home. And the CEO, Apoorva Mehta, you know, was prepared to give this big speech, meaning to sort of rally the troops and tell them, you know, this is our moment. This is going to be a really intense time for the company because so many people are going to turn to Instacart to get groceries during this pandemic, and we're going to be providing an essential service. So everyone has to be ready. You know, this is sort of our noble mission. It's wartime. And five minutes before the call starts, his apartment building's fire alarm starts going off. They're, they're running a test. There's not a fire, but, um, you know, he can't mute himself, uh, which, you know, is what we would normally do in that situation. And because he's the one presenting, he has to give this speech. So he talks for like 30 minutes while there's this alarm shrieking in the background. And in hindsight, you know, people think about, you know, this as being sort of a siren warning, like there's an emergency going to happen for this company because the next two months have been um, a pretty wild ride for them, good ways and bad. 
Well, let's talk about that, Ellen, because, man, there's so many things I've highlighted in your story, because you talk about, man, their volumes just, you know, surpassed their end-of-year goal, their 2021 goals, their 2022. I mean, their volume was just growing um, so much, but... Along the way, all of a sudden, problems started to come also to the forefront. And you talk about Instacart eventually, or Instacart became eventually card. Because for any of us trying to tap into it, man, we did too when our regular services weren't working. And it was like, oh, wait, we're not going to get that for, what, a week and a half? Um, So what happened? What were the problems that were unearthed? Well, so the huge spike in demand was kind of a blessing and a curse, right? So all of a sudden, this company is dealing with the type of demand that they were hoping for, you know, a few years down the road when they might have time to be prepared for it. Instead, it came in a matter of weeks. That meant that their technology systems were not ready. They had to do all sorts of um, shenanigans to, you know, move on to five times as many servers as they had before. They were dealing with double the traffic to their website every week, which is a lot. Um, You know, that compounds very quickly. Their engineers were pulling late nights doing data migrations and, and just trying to keep the site up, really. And then they were having this huge issue with um, just getting their main service to work, right? Like there was so much demand from customers. They didn't have enough shoppers. Stores, you know, grocery stores themselves were out of stock of all sorts of things given people were buying, you know, the whole shelf in a panic that they were really unable to deliver on the same day, which they used to be able to do, and deliver just the things that people wanted to buy. So as you mentioned, yeah, they started extending the delivery window out to 13 days, which actually means predicting what might be available at that period of time, which is very difficult. You know, they were hiring all sorts of people, but it takes a while to onboard, on, onboard people. So it's just been sort of a frantic time for the company. And that's reporter Ellen Hewitt, co-author of this week's cover story, as well as magazine editor Joel Weber, teeing that all up for us. This is, as I said in the conversation, a classic Business Week story. Well, and I love how Instacart became eventually cart, as they said in the story, as Ellen said in the story, because of the delays that customers saw when they were waiting for their orders. But the surge also unveiled weaknesses in the model, especially when it came to keeping workers safe. So, so many moving parts to this. It's a must read. And as we said, it's the cover story. You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, we talk crisis management with the one and only Ken Feinberg. This is Bloomberg. So, Jason, we're bringing everyone some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, so much dealing with the coronavirus, the impact, where we are, and how do we move forward. Right. And part of moving forward is figuring out potentially how to compensate people. This is a week where we learned that more than 30 million people have lost their jobs just over the past eight or nine weeks. We got a blockbuster in a bad way monthly jobs report. So what are the consequences of that? We turn to an expert in crisis management and the expert in the aftermath. He worked on 9-11. He worked on BP. He's worked for Boeing. We're talking about Ken Feinberg. Where are we in, in this crisis? What is new and different about this global pandemic versus some of the major things you've worked on, be it TARP, be it 9-11? I could go on and on. Well, of course, the isolation. Yeah. After 9-11, the tragedy of 9-11, a foreign terrorist attack, Everybody, all citizens came together, very bipartisan way, social cohesion. After the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Obama administration came together with the American people, immediately drafted a compensation plan of action. The trouble with the coronavirus and Mother Nature 
is that uh, solutions involve isolation. Mm -hmm. And you don't have that uh, social reinforcement that you would normally have after a, um, a most unfortunate tragedy. That makes this particularly difficult to cope with. Yeah, and to get to the other side of it, we have constantly kind of talked about this, you know, kind of juxtaposition of different forces of wanting to get back to work, wanting to get back to normal, but we also 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 want to be safe. And so I don't know, how do you see it? How do you see some of the programs that have been implemented, whether it's stimulus programs that kind of help us get to the other side? Well, first of all, in order to get to the other side with stimulus programs of any type, whether it's thousands of dollars or trillions of dollars, there are two critically important variables that I've learned about over the years. First, any resolution must be bipartisan. You cannot cope with a disaster like the coronavirus unless everyone comes together in an apolitical way. And to the credit of the Congress, uh, the trillion-dollar-plus stimulus packages that have emanated from the Congress so far and from the Trump administration uh, largely have been bipartisan, uh, with a minimum amount of, uh, of polarization and opposition. So that's good. But the second thing I've learned, often to my detriment, a hard, hard lessons learned, you better get the money out fast and efficiently. Mm -hmm. Because all the talk in the world slapping yourselves on the back about a great thing this is, if you don't deliver what is promised, thereby undercutting the expectation of the American people, the program is going to be tarnished. And every bit more important than enactment of stimulus or enactment of any legislation, however bipartisan, is that you get the money out, you get it out fast, and you get it to the right people, and expectations are met. And if they're not, you are laboring with a real, real obstacle. And so it does feel like, Kenneth Feinberg, that some things were done in haste in order to sort of get it out. Uh, mistakes were made. I think most people would concede uh, that point. Is that just to be expected, given the velocity at which this happened? Or were there things that could have been done and maybe can be done better in the future in order to ensure that it gets out and gets out in the right way, the, these funds? Well, that, that's a tough question. On the one hand, there's never been anything quite like this, coronavirus sure. stimulus in the trillions. I mean, I can empathize and sympathize a little bit with administrators with responsibility for getting the money out. But that may be in mitigation, but it doesn't solve the problem because um, it, it, it doesn't help if, as an operational matter, whether it's the rollout of Obamacare or whether it's this or any other number of programs. If you, if you tout a solution and then there are problems in delivery, in administration, in operations, so that the money is going slower or not going to the right people, that's a real problem that better be corrected fast or uh, the, the citizen disapproval will simply grow. 
And it's not just disapproval, right? It's also just there are people out there that have absolutely no safety net. And we're, you know, we know these problems were out there, Kenneth, but I feel like the virus has certainly laid them bare even more so. Um, and we really have left people out there in the cold. Oh, I think that's right. And it's it, what magnifies the problem, of mm-hmm. course, is what we spoke about five minutes ago. People are out there in the cold alone. There's not a whole lot of social cohesion when it comes to the virus, because you have to suffer basically in private, in, an, in, an, in isolation, where you don't have that social reinforcement from friends, colleagues, fellow employees, etc. And that's attorney Ken Feinberg, and I feel like attorney never really captures no. <laughs> what he is and what he does. He has been involved in some of the most difficult emotional and financially fraught compensation conversations that have been had in this country and globally for the past 20 years. That's right. 9-11, TARP, BP, Deepwater Horizon, also after the Boston Marathon bombing. And also, he was brought on by Boeing to oversee compensation for the 737 MAX victims' families and many, many more. So when it comes to kind of figuring out a situation and how folks can be fairly and rightfully compensated, he's the person to talk to. And what I took away from that conversation is... It's not a straight line. It's not straightforward in this case, particularly who gets compensated, what constitutes a frontline worker, who was putting their lives on the line. We know many people were, but where do you draw that line and how do you fund it? I got to say, it was a very, very thoughtful conversation. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, another conversation, thoughtful as well, with Frank Patterson. He's the CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios. And he talks about how the movie industry can bounce back after the pandemic. But Jason, he says, really, until we get a vaccine, it's going to take more time and it's going to cost more. Talk about complicated. This is Bloomberg. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our Bloomberg Business Week daily radio show, all about the coronavirus and really a focus, Carol, on what happens next. How do we deal with this when life gets back to what more and more people are calling the next normal? Right. And thinking about what is the next normal is certainly the movie and entertainment industry. And one of the industries trying to figure out what is the way back, Jason, is the movie and entertainment industry productions, right, which have been shut down as a result of the virus. We caught up with Frank Patterson, the president and CEO of Pinewood Atlantis Studios, who is thinking about how you do it. How do you keep the actors safe? How do you keep the crews safe? Here's what he had to say. Well, I mean, uh, as you've probably seen, we have uh, folks coming out uh, a little bit more from their homes. And I know personally my wife and I have begun to sort of venture out into the neighborhood. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it's good to see uh, our neighbors out uh, again. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a caution. You can tell that um, while some of the activities have been opened up, uh, a lot of us are still being quite cautious. And so what does it mean 
for the business because you guys are stacked up. I mean, just by you know, just by the numbers, and and you know them obviously uh, better than I do. But I mean, we're talking about eighteen sound stages. We're talking about seven hundred acres, a million square feet under one roof. I mean, the <laughs> second largest purpose-built studio in North America. I mean, this is uh, you know, this is a busy place. Where are you in in terms of getting back up and running? Yeah, as you as you as you mentioned, we were packed uh, when the virus hit, uh, and there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, you know, historically, we've never seen this kind of money spent on the production of entertainment content in the history of our industry. Right? I mean, Wall Street's been pouring more money into the pipeline than we've had the capacity to produce uh, in recent years. Obviously, because of uh, all the developments with the streaming technologies, so we were really busy. Uh, productions began to shut down, as you might imagine, in March. And we just said about the business of uh, my team on the ground at Pinewood Atlanta, you know, creating what we think are going to be the next next new best practices and protocols for getting back to work. Because uh, we believe, uh, you know, sometime this summer, productions are going to want to return. And, of course, we have to be prepared. So we've been putting a lot of work into what, um, as everyone says these days, our new normal is for production what does that what are those processes at this point what just quickly yeah quickly we focused on three areas that i think everyone's concerned about one is just sort of studio access and lot management right how do we manage the work on on the lot and manage the way people work together and then what kind of improvements can we make to our facilities uh, to make them healthier and safer? So, for example, air handling systems and swanky hand-washing stations and elect- electrostatic spray technology. You know, the new kinds of technologies that we can put in place in our facilities to make uh, the, you know, the work processes safer. And then the last is just sort of what we call better practices and protocols for how we're going to work together, how our crews are going to work together. Yeah. We've been collaborating with studios and guilds and unions and associations to try to come up with a best practices uh, set of guidelines, you know, in the next 30, 45 days. That's the CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios, Frank Patterson. And Jason, you know, when you think of movie studios and productions, you probably think about the West Coast, but Atlanta has a huge, huge setup there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you've seen an Avengers movie of mm-hmm. late, you have seen their work in action. One of the things I thought was so fascinating about him is he actually said a big blockbuster movie in some ways is easier yeah. to film than maybe sort of a smaller sort of film. And we hearken back to our conversation a couple of weeks ago with Jane Rosenthal at Tribeca, obviously right. one of the producers of The Irishman. And it's interesting to think about what types of movies get made, but also to talk with him about what it looks like to go see a big movie, a big blockbuster tentpole type movie on the other side of this. And I will say one of the things I took away is he said it's going to be 20% more time and money until we get a vaccine in terms of doing production costs. So yeah, we got to figure this one out. All right. Also figuring it out is Paul Rabel. He's the premier lacrosse league co-founder, also arguably the best known person ever to play lacrosse. He's coming up. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
So we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. Of course, Jason, everything talking about the virus, kind of where we are, the impact, and then what life looks like uh, post-COVID-19. And that includes the sports industry. Absolutely. And this is something very close to my heart. I'm a huge sports fan. I also love the business of sports. And for more on that, you can actually check out the business of sports podcast, which I was hosting this week with Michael Barr and Evan Novi Williams. And one of the things we were talking about there, and I was excited to talk about on our show, Carol, was lacrosse. Paul Rabel, he's the co-founder. He's the chief marketing officer of the Premier Lacrosse League. He's got a plan and it is ambitious. Check it out. We're excited. You know, it's an interesting thing because you know, we're, we're, we're all sitting here on May 6th, and it's challenging, and there are still very difficult times that, uh, and a long road ahead of us. Uh, but as we look at our businesses collectively, whether you're in the media business, auto, retail, in our case, sports, you try to figure out a way to get your, your skilled workforce back in, in a very medically safe way. And when it comes to sports and the sports industry, there is uh, such a macro impact for networks, for media companies, for advertising and for brands and, and just like a number of sectors that benefit from the game getting back on. And, and in our case, being able to provide an opportunity for our players to play. Um, we went down, started going down this path as soon as eight weeks ago when the World Health Org had identified and officially declared this a global pandemic with COVID-19 and the more we uncovered with our colleagues uh, across commissioners and other sports leagues and ownership groups, and then getting access to CDC, WHO, as well as the White House Sports Committee Task Force, it became a foregone conclusion that fans wouldn't be at games for the foreseeable future. And then it became about how can, if we do play, play in a safe environment where players aren't at risk, and for us, we started going down the path of building a fully quarantined scenario. And uh, we're able to do that partly because of the nascent stage that we're in and that we only have seven teams. We started last year with six. We expanded in our first off season. And, uh, and the reason that matters is if you look at a fully quarantined model, there are only a handful of locations out there right. that can take on every player in the league across all the teams, key personnel, medical as well as ops, production, and so on. And in our case, like really stringent medical protocol, everyone arrives to a location, they check in, we go through the right testing, it's approved, and then we're playing, and no one's leaving until it's done, and no one's coming in until it's done. And, uh, and that's what we've edited out. We ended up partnering with NBC and, and finding a time that uh, you know, provided itself as, as attractive to us, and that was the Olympic window that was previously scheduled and postponed in 2021, so end of August into, or end of July and early August, and uh, just made that announcement today. We think that it'll be a model for other team sports so long as they can figure out their total quantity of participants. Yeah, and how does that impact things? Right. In terms of how yeah. many players you can bring in, how many, play, you know, safely. Yeah. So it, it, it definitely changes the model a bit because traditionally you would have a full regular season and your playoffs and championship and you have time in between games. So this is going to look more like a World Cup or a March Madness where it's mm -hmm. a lot of games in a condensed period. So we've, we've expanded our player rosters. So we were originally addressing 18 players, now it's 22. So you got to take into account more play and, and potential injury and fatigue and so on. 
Um, and then and then you look at the format itself. So we're going to play 20 games in 16 days. It's a three-week total quarantine. So uh, we can talk a little bit about the medical protocol, but essentially there's a mini camp that leads into it, and then we uh, and then we start playing. And the first week, like the World Cup, is group play for seeding, and then the second week is a single elimination tournament for a champion. And so. What does this do? And we're going to talk a little bit about this on the other side uh, because we got to get to some news and things like that, Paul Rabel. But briefly, in in thirty seconds, sponsors are, are going to be happy with this, right? Yeah, yeah. So right now, if you look at our industry in sports, you're conceding tickets, concessions, parking, merchandise on site, local sponsorships. So if you're making a run at this, you got to look at the viewership play through so distribution and then sponsors. And if you figure out viewership, you can recoup your commitment from your 2020 sponsors and potentially get more. And so that's how we're looking at this is, yeah. a, is a viewership distribution and sponsorship move. Paul, something I have to ask about your plans here to do um, this two-week tournament. When you said that you're going to be playing, like some, I think you said 20 games in 16 days, and you talked about very stringent medical protocols, are you saying that the teams that are going to be playing are all going to be in lockdown as well? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So that that's yeah that's the key difference between what we're seeing the NBA and and Major League Baseball even explore is getting everyone to a geography and then maintaining some level of uh, hygiene between where the players stay in the facilities. What we're saying is we think it actually needs to be more defined and safe than that. Yeah. So everyone will will be on the same campus in different dormitories. And then we'll have practice facilities and abilities for teams to function independent of each other as they prepare for games and independent locker rooms and film study rooms. But then there's a game field. And so everyone, it's going to be like a mini Olympic village. And, yeah. and that includes our production team and NBC's talent. They're going to be there during the full quarantine as well. So how do you, how do you scale this up? And I do think about the Olympics, yeah. right? They're trying to figure that out, you know, and whether or not they can really go ahead. And I guess it does depend largely on a vaccine. But I do wonder, how do you think about And the conversations that you said, you know, you're all, you know, accessing the CDC and WHO Sports Task Force. What are the conversations about how you scale this up? Yeah, so the, the biggest piece to even be able to get there is is knowing that there are no positive tests. So before everyone from players to our participants, the broadcast members arrive, we have three phases. There's going to be an at-home phase of testing uh, where the results will be in, and there's going to be a quarantine phase during that at-home moment. Then when people commute to the site, we'll all uh, arrive during the same time period and go through the same COVID testing again to identify any discrepancy. And then there will be another short quarantine period, and there will be a, a final test during uh, in between the group play and the single elimination. So that's been recommended by our committee that we put together that includes uh, external infectious disease specialists and internal medicine doctors. Um, and then as far as the value in communicating with the White House and the CDC uh, and the WHO is that they've given us evidence that indicates that we will not be purchasing tests away from other uh, states or uh, you call it uh, patrons in need based on symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we're making this announcement here on May 6th. What a lot of leagues are trying to figure out is if they can come up with a model that works, how do you get access to testing and that testing being preventative? Right. Because right now we're still in a very shortage of testing. 
So what we have been told and advised on from the groups that I had mentioned is by the middle of this month, you're going to see more states like California give point-of-care access testing. Um, and then by the 1st of June, that should be deployed close to nationwide. Right. Um, so we're, our tournament's the end of July, and that's a critical piece. Otherwise, we wouldn't have pushed play on this just because we don't, uh, despite all of the benefits you can get from finding a safe environment and playing games and distributing those games, we do not want to interfere with the pu- public testing protocol. Right. So, Paul, I have to ask you, you know, and the last time you were with us was right around the time that the Olympics were postponed a year. Uh, Now here we are, May 6th, as you say, you've got a plan going forward. Other pro leagues, we're still sort of waiting on hearing. What's your prediction for for 2020? You have figured out a, a solution as you and you talk to a lot of other commissioners and, as you say, uh, owners of teams and owners of leagues. What's your prediction for the rest of 2020 here? Yeah, that's a great question. There, there are a number of variables, I'll, I'll say that. So we're all in conversation and we've all been comparing notes. So I think everyone agrees that uh, for leagues that want to play this summer, the quarantine model is ideal. There are two big factors that we're going to find out, and this comes down to fans and consumer confidence, because the Miami Dolphins, you said, they laid out a schedule, but you know, what we look at is history of SARS and consumer confidence back to, back to retail. And if you look at uh, COVID, well, what are the parallels? Well, first, there's going to be a drug or treatment that's introduced and needs to get FDA approved and provided at scale. We don't know when that's going to come, but that will come before vaccination. We know a vaccination, in a best case, isn't going to be here till 2021. I don't believe that uh, leagues, unless you're the NFL that, prevent, that presents a really strong uh, you know, I, I, I think like a, a strong um, indication for a lot of fans who just sometimes will go because they're that passionate about it. I don't see a world where a consumer is going to spend on a ticket and, and opt into potential exposure to a virus when there isn't a vaccine, and especially when there isn't a drug or treatment for it right now. So until we get to that place, I see a world where sports are going to have to figure out how to play without fans and then focus on how you can create an environment where it's safe for your players so they can feel comfortable. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Master. Be sure to check out our BW Extra podcast with Patrick McGinnis, who is the creator of FOMO. Yeah, he actually coined the <laughs> phrase. It's legit. I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio. Catch a lot of these interviews as they're happening live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, we'll check out our daily podcast wherever you download podcasts. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.